Welcome to the latest episode of The Shamrock. I'm Pete Sampson, joined as always by my co-host Matt Fortuna. And joining us from somewhere around greater Los Angeles uh, is Antonio Morales, our USC beat writer at The Athletic. Antonio, thanks for making some time this week. And um, yeah, it's the first time since this has been a top 25 game in L.A. since 2006, uh, when it was Brady Quinn versus John David Booty. Things have changed a little bit for both programs, but uh I don't think there's a program in college football that has changed more in the last 12 months than USC. And we both cover Notre Dame, which would be high on that list. But in terms of the man, the Lincoln Riley revolution or whatever you want to call it, what what has it been like to sort of be on the ground covering it and sort of documenting how a team went from just a drift in college football to suddenly in position to play its way into the college football playoff? Well, they kind of represent like all the touch points that were like a major topic of discussion all off season. You have the the coaching salaries, the rising coaching salaries, and Lincoln's at the forefront of that. You have the transfer portal and just roster movement and everything like that. And they brought in twenty transfers and got rid of twenty twenty more guys. Basically, process twenty more guys. Um, the, the whole coaching staff is new, except for Dante Williams, who you guys remember said USC just ran out of time uh, last year. And um, and then there's the NIL aspect, which like USC is painted as like like an NIL boogeyman. But if you ask their fans, they're not they're not doing enough in NIL. What's NIL? <laughs> we don't know about that. At Notre yeah, Notre Dame's <laughs> unfamiliar with it. Um, so it's they're, they're kind of like just at the forefront of like where the sport is kind of headed and it's just been interesting to watch that all come together. And, um, it's the most extreme version of it, but, um, obviously it's worked for them. It's funny you mentioned Antonio, cause I, I have a column come out tomorrow looking at a bunch of different things in the coaching kind of carousel and, uh, at a line in there basically saying there are a lot of ADs who are going to point to what Lincoln Riley did this year at USC and be like, see, we can get good really quick. And it's like, well, it's also the bluest of blue bloods. He's, Maybe the best coach in the country, certainly on the short list behind Nick Saban, and they're in Los Angeles. I think it's not, not to take away from what he's done, but he's got a, some few a few advantages there that maybe Auburn and some other places will. We all knew he would get this thing turned around. We all knew know what he's about, what he's made of. I guess are, are you surprised it's this soon? Like they may have a Heisman, the Heisman winner, and a college football playoff team come two weeks from now. Uh, definitely, I thought this season was going to be like a more of a nine and three type season. I thought maybe 2023 or 2024, this was before the big 10 right. move, but I thought those two years were going to be the years where they really kind of took off. And I, I was just thinking about it earlier today. Just, I, I don't know what that means. If they go to the playoff in year one, like how do you view like expectations for next year and <laughs> everything like that? Cause they're going to lose some talented players. Like the defense is not good this year. And they're going to lose talented players like off to that group for next season. I know that they'll hit the portal hard, but there's not a, a ton of great defensive players in the portal every year. I think it's easier to get better on offense in the portal. Um, so it's like, how is this going to like change expectations? If you make the playoff this year, like are people going to be expecting like national title or something next year? When I don't know if that'll be realistic. Um, so I got, I was thinking nine and three, they're, they're already 10 and one. So I think they've, exceeded expectations even though i thought the defense was going to look like this um 
the the offense has you know led the way. With the offense, I mean, Matt said, you know, what anyone would have thought, like the idea of Lincoln Riley developing a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback, yeah, totally predictable. Um, but to go ten and one, definitely not. Um, and I think that you and Bruce maybe collaborated on a story last week going to the UCLA game, and I think there was feedback in there about like if you took Caleb Williams off USC's roster, maybe they're six and four, maybe they're seven and three. Um, mm-hmm. How like do you sort of see it that way? And like, could you give people a sense of how sort of important and fundamental Caleb Williams is to all the success that's happening with USC right now? Yeah. I think if they had like Jackson Dart or something, they'd still be like six and four, like around okay. there just because, Caleb, like the offensive line is very good. Like, I, I think people kind of underestimated it going into the season, but I think it's very good. But even when they do have their issues and people do get to Caleb, he just evades all these sacks and gets out of trouble. And he's just like a magician in the pocket. And um, when he does get on the move, he makes great throws like he did against UCLA where he threads the needle and uh, it turns into like a, like a 40 yard gain. Um, his top two receivers were out for about three weeks and he played some of the best football of the season in that time. And, uh, Travis Dye was out last week and USC's offense still put up 649 yards. And a lot of that had to do with Caleb. It's like, no matter what's changing around him or what's asked of him, he's playing with a defense that basically like requires him to score like 42, 45 points a game. Um, these are a lot of like heavy asks, and he's kind of met the call pretty much every game this season. You mentioned the defense, and, and look, personnel-wise, it's not where they want it to be. And yet, you look up, they're number one nationally in turnover margin. They forced 24 turnovers on the year, fifth nationally. Um, they got four last week against UCLA, and they need every damn one of them to come out of that game alive. I, I think earlier in the year we saw them doing this against Stanford and some other teams that thought this probably isn't sustainable. Eventually they're going to get a bill passed to, and maybe they did get that in the Utah game. But what is it about Alex Grinch that makes him such a great defense coordinator and gets his players to create such havoc, even when, you know, they're giving up big plays and the yardage numbers are not great. They're they're still making the plays that end up deciding these games. I think he's instilled a sense of confidence in these guys that they didn't have last year i think a lot of the games last year like once things went bad they're just really demoralized um so ucla put up 62 on them last year and you can see that coming from a mile away a week weeks ahead weeks ahead of time just based off the way they were playing and this year even though when things are aren't going well for them they still they don't hang their heads really they they go out there and make their plays and Honestly, they're they're one play away from being eleven and zero right now. Um, they just didn't get that stop they needed at Utah, but they kind of redeemed themselves for that with that ending against UCLA and coming up with uh, the clinching turnover. Um, so no matter what the struggles are, I think they've just come in with the approach like we're we're a play we're a turnover or or three plays away from from getting off the field, and um, that's just something they didn't have. Last year's a team, they just didn't have that belief or that confidence. And um, I, I think the defensive line is playing well um, this season. They get gashed in the run game because Grinch, is, Grinch does a lot of slanting, a lot of moving uh, with the defensive line, and you see opposing offenses take advantage of it. 
but the defensive line gets pressure on quarterbacks. And uh, there's been a few games where uh, you heard it against Oregon State and Utah and even UCLA where the talk was, uh, this team's just going to physically maul USC. USC just, like doesn't know what's what doesn't know what's coming. They're just going to get pounded in the run game. And those teams got their yards, but they never really controlled the line of scrimmage like teams thought they would. And I think that's a credit to USC's defensive line, and that's why uh, Sean Newell, the defensive line coach, is you know in the running for the Bros Award. I, I'm interested to sort of double back to their their offensive line a little bit because I mean I think the Joe Moore Award semifinalist list came out. USC was on it. Notre Dame was not. That that's a big sort of paradigm shift from where this where these two programs were probably over the last five six years. How where did that line take the biggest step forward? I know they they got some help in the transfer portal uh, from Virginia, but like what's What's been the the biggest reason for that improvement? Because I, I think that they were sort of like beyond underachieving. Like they, they, it just was not a good group for a while. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems like they actually have some physicality to them now, um, aided perhaps by their quarterback also having kind of a physical edge too. Yeah, I think they took a step forward last year. They weren't like a great group, but they were like a, a good group. Um, they struggled against some of the better pass rushing teams they faced like Notre Dame. But they were still much better than like I expected and I think everyone else expected. And a lot of those guys came back and now they're a year older. And I think last year's scheme continuity helped. And then this year they brought in Josh Henson from AM. And Lincoln Riley's air raid, his his offense isn't the same as Graham Harrell's air raid, but a lot of the stuff is kind of somewhat similar. So I think these guys are aided in the fact that it's not a ton different with some of the stuff they do as far as off the line goes. And um, Josh Henson just done a really good job developing some of the younger players. Because if, if you would have asked me before the season, I would have told you the first five are fine. Like they're going to be good and that's not going to be an issue. But if there's an injury or two, and I think that with the, the depth isn't there, but they've had an injury or two this season and they've plugged in guys and they haven't really missed a beat. Uh, Mason Murphy, who's been the starter at left tackle the past couple of games over Bobby Haskins, um, as a guy who's probably the future of the line at left tackle. And, um, uh, he stepped up and developed really well. Um, Gino Quinones is a reserve guy who stepped up and done really well, um, when he was called upon. Um, so that's been the surprising aspect. And, um, I think it's just the older guys, taking another step forward based off of what they showed last year. Um, that's really taken this group to another level. Antonio, you're, you're from Southern California. You've covered this program for a while. Never quite this good. I don't think you're covering them in the Carroll days, but w- what's it been like? You always hear the term sleeping giant. Everyone knows about the history of USC. Everyone knows, you know, the, the swag and, and how cool it is when they're winning again and all the celebrities are showing up on the sideline. What's it been like, you know, just having a front row seat to this kind of renaissance so quickly? What's what's the atmosphere and energy been like? Because I'm sure uh, your inbox and your your Twitter mentions were an absolute tire fire the last four years or pretty much <laughs> since you've been covering them in that tenor has definitely changed. Obviously now, I think this fan base, I don't think it's all the way unified, but I think it's more unified than it's been since the tail end of the Pete Carroll era. I think they were a little divided because NCAA sanctions and um, the Sarkeesian hire, the Helton hire, 
you know, those not going the way they wanted and those searches not going the way they wanted um, divided the fan base a bit. But I think Lincoln Riley is getting everyone more unified again. And uh, the atmosphere has been very positive. And I wanted to see during the season, like what, like when would like the honeymoon phase end, but they're 10 and one. So it's still going pretty strong. And uh, um, to me, I thought, they're nine and one, like entering the UCLA game. I was like, but that season would take a much different light if they lost to like UCLA and Notre Dame, but they beat UCLA. So I think everybody's really, really happy around here. And uh, the fact they're in the mix of the playoff, obviously um, they're believing again. And I think they're, they're just happy to kind of be in this position and in this conversation, especially when they won four games a year ago. I mean, it's just like what you feel like the vibe is around USC coming out of the UCLA game. And I ask that in the sense of like watching that game. I don't have an appreciation in the Midwest for that rivalry. Um, it seemed like both teams really burned a lot of fuel in that game. Um, it was it was very, very emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, if you saw the same thing being there, felt the same thing being there. And if that, not that like Notre Dame and uh, USC isn't a rivalry it is but it's a different kind of rivalry i I don't think that there's like sort of this like local animosity or hatred there like is could in any way usc sort of come out of the ucla game like a little bit drained just because of how much they put into it that's what i was wondering because it's sandwiched you have the UCLA game and this Notre Dame game sandwiched between the Pac-12 title game. Right. Um, and it's that's odd, like, it's weird that this is like their least important game of the of a three week <laughs> stretch. Right. Yeah. So like, and that Pac-12 title game is on a short week. So, um, you know, you're kind of looking to like Oregon and stuff or Utah. Um, and you have this top 15 team that's coming to your place and like would love to spoil your national title, like your comfortable playoff run. Um, it's a very good roster too. And uh, so, like, obviously, there's there's so much attention placed on the UCLA game for about a month. Like, ever since UCLA beat Washington and Utah, those back-to-back weeks, I think USC fans kind of noticed, like, hey, this team is going to be trouble. Uh, even though they lost to, to Oregon, I think that was someone they saw as a very formidable opponent. I think they were concerned about Zach Charbonnet and DTR and what they could do to, to that defense. So there hasn't been like a ton of talk about Notre Dame just because UCLA was going to be a tough opponent and it was coming up first on the schedule. And um, I, I think like there hasn't been a ton of talk about Notre Dame. So probably like the past two weeks when um, they played Cal and you know it, Cal didn't have a chance to win, but I think they played them closer than people expected. And then I think people got a little nervous. Like USC fans are like, are we going to beat UCLA? Are we going to beat Notre Dame? And then I think that's when more attention got placed on those two teams. I'll go back to the Caleb Williams for a second, Antonio. I'm curious from from your perspective because you're there every day and and you've covered this guy since he got there. I I get all the hype right now. Um, You know, when he he does what he did against UCLA and on that stage, the the guy looks like the best player in the country. And, you know, he was first in in my votes and a lot of our votes um, this week's highest. Mine too. I mean, I I had him too for a while before that. And I wrote a column today that I think endeared me to USC fans and pissed off everyone else, which is essentially (laughs) why did it take so long for this guy to get so much attention? Because they've played every single game this year at six Eastern time or later. 
only two of which have been in primetime windows with 18 broadcasters. Like you mentioned the Cal game. I was, me and Pete were recording the Shamrock after Notre Dame Clemson. I wrote USC's up big. I go home 24 hours later. I see Cal almost won. Like it's, and I'm a guy who follows this closely. Like I just think the visibility has been terrible. I've got a million people I mentioned saying his schedule sucks and it's much better than Michigan's and it's every bit as bad as Ohio State's. Like, I just think you play Indiana in the big noon kickoff and you have a big game if you're Ohio State. CJ Stroud, he's a Heisman winner. Caleb mm-hmm. Williams does not have those opportunities, which dovetails into another conversation we can get to about why they're leaving for the Big Ten. But are you surprised just seeing how good he's been every week this year? Surprised that it kind of took this long and this kind of moment for him to get this kind of attention? Yeah. Coming into the season, I was I was so curious about what he could be. He, he had the the big moments at Oklahoma last year, but you you also had like the Baylor game and right. the Iowa State game to where he got really like shut down and slowed down. Uh, then he started off the season hot, and then he had like two quiet games. One one was at Oregon State. I think that was his worst game of the year. And then he had uh, two weeks later, Washington State kind of slowed him down as well. Um, so I was like, okay, there's still some growing to do there. And then ever since the Utah game, he just took off. I was curious to see how he was going to play that game because I think Oregon state kind of flustered the offense on the road. I was like, how is he going to handle this road environment at Utah? I was like an emotionally charged night. They're honoring Ty Jordan and Aaron Lowe. Um, this is a good Utah team. That's like kind of like fighting for their life in the Pac-12 and he just lit up Utah. Um, that was probably up until last week is his best game of the season. And, and at that point, that was the best team they'd played. And he's just been full go, full steam ahead ever since then. And just like kind of carried this team on, on his back against an Arizona team that's not very good, but it's kind of plucky. Um, then beat UCLA um, and got those wins against Colorado and Cal. And um, just seeing what he does and how he's kind of carried this offense and just how poised he is. These have been some kind of high pressure situations where he's been pretty much has to score on every drive. Uh, he doesn't do it every time, but he does it a lot of the time. And um, that's what USC needed. And I think it's been so impressive um, just watching him. And um, uh, he's just playing with a ton of confidence right now. So when when USC's offense bogs down, which is not often, um, mm-hmm. maybe we can go weeks between that happening. Uh, and I don't know how applicable you feel like the Oregon State game isn't even is anymore. But like... Watching the UCLA game uh, on Saturday night, I felt like UCLA was trying to get pressure with like a limited pass rush, not blitzing a lot. Like, is it is it as simple as like you have to get home with four or sometimes three guys? Because um, it it felt like Caleb Williams had a hell of a lot of time back there to just sort of pick apart whatever UCLA was or was not doing. Is that? I mean, if you were trying to defend Caleb Williams, how how would you do it? How have you seen teams have even just like this little scintilla of success against him? I, I think coming into the year, people thought like drop eight, drop seven, and yeah. you know, live with that and make him beat you. And but like I think teams have tried that, and it hasn't. Like Utah tried to only rush four, and he lit him up, and they had to blitz a lot more the rest of the game, and they got some pressure. Uh, they didn't obviously still put up forty two points. Mm-hmm. But they got a couple of sacks on some, in some critical situations to where USC could have pulled away, like got up 21, but they kept it at 14 because they got some sacks and and things like that. I think Oregon State changed up the looks on him in a, in a pretty good way. 
Um, and, and their secondary is really good, probably the best in the Pac-12. There's not a lot of good defenses in the Pac-12 this year, um, but Oregon State has a legitimately good defense. And so I, I think you kind of have to switch it up on them. Um, the UCLA interception he had was the worst throw he's made and the worst decision he's made all season. Uh, that was kind of surprising to see just because for as much as he's throwing the ball, he only has three picks. Um, mm-hmm. Two have come in the past two weeks. Um, so I, I think just switching up and giving him a variety of looks is kind of the key to trying to slow him down. It's funny, even that Oregon State game, which you know, I had to illegally stream and watch late at night on Pac-12 Network here. Um, I know it wasn't his best game, but I feel like in some ways you learn more about him through that than anything else because you know he takes him down at the end, makes and a throw that just looks better with each replay to, to Jordan Addison to win it at the end there. And I just think it says a lot about the guy and the way he's played so far. Um, the season's been so electric, and there's so much at stake for USC in the short term that it probably hasn't gotten as much attention or discussion locally as it would have otherwise. But I'm curious, uh, you know, next time Notre Dame goes out there, this will be, you know, will USC be playing in the Big Ten title game the next week, not the Pac-12 title game? <laughs> it's still pretty crazy to think about them as a future Big Ten team. Uh, what What's kind of the been the reaction to, to that move coming in two years locally? I think the fans love it. I think... I think there's a little more hesitation on the UCLA side of things, but USC, I think they're they're ready. I think they want to go. I think there's always been like you you hear it like when it's like the slowest point of like every off season, like in May or something, you hear like should Notre, should USC go independent and all this stuff. And then, so right. like and so like every, like every year like without fail, you you hear something like that. And um, so I, I think they've been ready to leave the Pac-12. Um, the late night kicks, the lack of revenue, the officiating, um, just all, all those factors um, have had them ready to go for a while. And um, uh, so when it happened, I think uh, they were excited. I think they're, they're still excited. I think they still realize there's work that needs to be done to their roster. Like they need to get better on the defensive line. They need more depth along the offensive line. But I think they know what that what that money could do for the program in terms of retaining and hiring better coaches and, um, you know, building out your recruiting department and building facilities wherever you can on campus and you at USC, it's, it's hard. Um, but, uh, you know, fixing those and kind of improving those and, um, because, you know, they're expected to compete with the SEC schools and Notre Dame and Ohio state and Michigan and, you know, the Pac-12 payout you know, isn't going to really contribute to that. So I think they're ready to go to the Big Ten and get that money and um, try to be on the upper echelon. Is it, uh, before getting back to the game, like what is the sense of the Notre Dame series around there? Like I know they've said that it's going to continue as, I think sort of as is, um, but like yeah. does that does that work for, I mean, the Big Ten likes to have sort of conference rivalry week be at the end of the year. Um, that's this week. Um, Big Ten doesn't play a lot of, I think, non-conference games during the conference schedule, which is typically when USC comes out here. Um, is there a whole lot of talk about how that may or could change? They haven't talked about it much um, yet, I know. Um, I'm sure they'd love to keep it, and I think they will, but they haven't talked about how much how much it'll change yet. And I know that's going to obviously be a big topic of discussion, you know, in a year or two. 
One more on that. I, I asked this in real time and it's become less relevant now as they've gotten really good really quick. But I always wondered, do you think Lincoln Riley would have taken the job if he knew they were going to the Big Ten? Because I just feel like he's going to have to recruit so much differently and run mm-hmm. a different offense eventually, at least in November, than he's used to doing. I kind of think he would have just because, you know, well, now it's, I guess you have to weigh. Would you want to stay in the SEC with Oklahoma, or would you want to right, go to like yeah, yeah. The, the Big Ten with with USC? And like, which one would you have more success with? Um, I still think it's probably USC in the Big Ten and Oklahoma in the SEC. Um, so I, I think I think he would have. So yeah. I mean, Sorry, as they rec- as they recruit differently, like you mentioned, sort of the defensive line. Um, mm-hmm. What? Do they not have like the horses on defense to be better than they are, or like because they have a very good defensive coordinator? I think that's like kind of understood around college football. Where do you think not like the, the biggest? Fans. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. It's un... maybe it's not understood, but like where are the biggest gaps on that side of the ball? Because um, they're not they're not just like struggling here a little bit. I mean, they've been sort of historically yeah. bad. You, I think you see it in the defensive front. Um, they don't have like Corey Foreman. He made the play on on Saturday night, but this this was a guy who was like the number one prospect in the country for a majority of the 2021 cycle. Like he's supposed to be for them what like JTT is for Ohio State, and like he hasn't been producing or making that mm-hmm. sort of impact until Saturday night. And um, there's just not a lot of big bodies on the defensive line on the West Coast. It's it's, a, it's an issue for them and the rest of the Pac-12 schools. Um, so when you have a guy like Corey Foreman, it, it's imperative to sign him and then for him to develop into you know, an, an impact player, and he hasn't. And um, in that same class, they've had Rajon Davis, who's a top 50 linebacker in the country. He hasn't played much um, since he arrived uh, two years ago. And so those linebacker, it's... It's been a long time since they've had like a true impact guy, like the the Cushing, Maluga, Clay Matthews days. You know, those yeah. are those, those are long the, gone for you. Yeah, the yeah. 2006 game when you're just like, holy! Cr-. I mean, I remember like Keith Rivers out there. Like they, mm-hmm. it was just like to quote Ari Wasserman, "His dudes everywhere." Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it doesn't seem like it's been that way for a while. So it, it's just like I mean, you think it's just a lack of volume of. Mm-hmm. Guys, not only quality guys, but like the quality guys they have hit have have turned out to be misses. Like, because mm-hmm. that's, I mean, I think that has been Notre Dame's issue sometimes. Like, they don't have the roster depth where like they need their five stars to hit. Like, Michael Mayer can't come here and just be okay. He has to be a stud, or Kyle Hamilton has to be a stud. Like, their version of Hamilton and Mayer just like haven't been what they thought they were going to be. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah. Clay Elton. He, initially, he did a good job recruiting the defensive line, uh, but then towards the latter years, it slipped, and you know, that staff wasn't a good recruiting staff, and all the constant hot seat talk didn't help him in, in any way on the recruiting trail. And I think you see the 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 result of that now when they play defense. How have they changed the way they operate internally, recruiting-wise? And, and I say that you know, independent of the transfer portal, which obviously you can't ignore, but when you look at this roster, the best players obviously just came from other schools. When you look at how Lincoln Riley is going to build this thing out long-term, 
What is his approach? Will it be similar to Oklahoma's? Will it be a mix of what he did at Oklahoma and, and taking advantage of the location he's in right now? How have they got after it on the high school trail? At Oklahoma, I think they did, they did a good job of filling their needs and going out nationally when they needed to. I, I think you're seeing a, a mix of that and relying on Southern California when the talent's there. Malachi Nelson and Makai Lemon are two top 40 guys. Malachi Nelson's like the number three player in the country. So that kind of helps the quarterback and wide receiver need. Then you see them go to Nevada to get Zach Branch, who's a five-star wideout, um, go to Louisiana and get a, a four-star linebacker and beat Ohio State for Tech and Curtis. Um, they've got a Texas a bunch too for some running backs. That's where this staff has a lot of connections. Um, so I think you've seen them try to get what they can't, what they, what they need in Southern California. And then um, when they have needs elsewhere and they can't fill those in Southern California, then they kind of try to branch out and uh, get those guys from different regions of the country. I mean, do you expect like the transfer portal activity to be, it's gotta be decreased. um, But like, do you think they'll, they'll sort of settle into a happy flow of like five, six transfers a year or, do you think it maybe it maybe a dozen every year moving forward? Like Lincoln Riley just may build his rosters differently than everybody else. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it obviously won't be like twenty guys again. Yeah. I think it could see like ten. Um, that'd still be a pretty good amount um, for them. Right now, they have twenty high school kids, but I just think so much is going to change with the elimination of the twenty-five initial counters, and I think. Uh, that's just, that's just going to change the way they go about building the roster. I still think there's, they can still take advantage of that rule to where you can basically process kids for, I think, I think he still has a couple of months to where he can take advantage of it. And I think we'll see that in December. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot more transfers coming in. I just think they're going to be a popular destination too. I think wideouts are going to want to play with Caleb Williams next year. Um, there's going to be opportunities for playing time like almost everywhere on defense. Um, and this might be a playoff team. And, you know, that's going to be something they can sell on the portal um, really, really well. And um, I, I think they're going to be very, very active again there this year. So a year ago from the time we'll, we'll be covering this game this weekend, Mike Bone and Brandon Saza were in a suite watching the Big 12 title game. Oklahoma lose, basically high-five themselves thinking they got this guy and they did. <laughs> Day after that, Brian Kelly leaves for LSU. Each one more shocking than the last. I'm curious from your standpoint, which which move surprised you more? USC <laughs> taking Lincoln Riley from Oklahoma or Brian Kelly leaving Notre Dame for LSU? I think it was the Lincoln Riley one that surprised me more. Because, really? Wow. Yeah. I remember like telling someone, like, no, nobody leaves Oklahoma, like, I obviously didn't know Lincoln was you know, going to come to USC, but when like when the the LSU rumors were going on with Lincoln and LSU, I was like, he's not going to leave for like LSU. The, nobody leaves Oklahoma at all. Like, well, like I'll leave Notre Dame for LSU. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so I was like, he's not going to go there. And uh, then when he got hired at USC, I was stunned. Um, but like there is some talk that USC was like talking to Brian Kelly, like not like going to offer him or whatever, but there was like some conversations like, you know, they were vetting him and like checking him out and like 
trying to talk to him. Um, so like you kind of knew like maybe he might listen or he was going to be approached by somebody. Um, so I, I think that made that kind of less, less surprising to me. It's funny. And just to piggyback off that, I mean, they have the same agent. He clearly was creating a bidding war uh, with his clients among multiple schools and got them both paid. But um, <laughs> that week, I mean, probably a year ago today, maybe it was when Brian Kelly got asked directly about USC because he kept his name tip getting thrown out for that. And he made the definitive statement of like, unless they give me whatever it was, three I, fairy godmother uh, offer, fairy godmother <laughs> offer, yeah, the term he used. <laughs> fairy god was it? Uh, he said this will be my final coaching stop, and you know, a few days later, that ended up not being true. But <laughs> I, I just thought, you know, there was a reason though, independent of whatever was going on behind the scenes. Like, and Pete and I spent a lot of time on this show last mm-hmm. year when USC was open. I thought I, I didn't think he would leave for anywhere, but I thought if he were to leave, USC would make more sense than where he ended up going. Just as far as you know, city guy. I think he would fit out, fit more on the West Coast than he would down South. And, and, and you know, he, he could recruit at his own pace, so to speak. But man, everything just kind of, kind of took I, a flip there with everybody. Um, you know, th- we, when we recorded this show with you last year, we were in a far different place, both as, as Notre Dame <laughs> reporters and, and as USC reporters. That's for sure. Are you guys surprised yeah. by LSU's, uh, LSU season? This year, yes. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I, I feel like on both ends of the spectrum, though, like I, the fact that they got absolutely housed at home by Tennessee surprised me. I think it was like Brian Kelly's worst home loss since he was at Grand Valley State. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the kind of game that, but I, it was the kind of game that I thought that he would not leave Notre Dame because he would have to endure right. a total culture rebuild. Like, I just didn't think he had the energy to do what he's doing. Like, Lincoln Riley, I totally get. Like, he's, mm-hmm. he, he, he may have another move after this one um, in terms of his career. Brian Kelly, I thought I kind of took him at his word that he was done. But when someone offers you 10 years for 95 million guaranteed, like I get it. Um, I do think a lot of Norian fans were like jumping up and down when they lost to Florida state (laughs) in a really comical way um, and thought like, ha ha, like this is, this is going to be a long slog there. But um, I was surprised to be, Alabama, just because I I didn't think that um, him delivering in big games like he's, he's they've had yeah. good performances in big games, not the playoff, but like in the regular season. But rarely the do Georgia they sort of, games. Like yeah, they just don't right. win them. They they play well. Mm-hmm. Um, so to win that was was pretty surprising. Um, kind of like getting into the nitty gritty of this one, like just from a an injury report, how healthy or not is USC? Cause we talked to Marcus Freeman on Monday, uh, revealed that safety Brandon Joseph is probable with ankle sprain. He's missed the last two weeks, but cam Hart, their starting corner is questionable and usually questionable has meant out this season, uh, for Notre Dame. So that, that is, uh, a potential serious blow to to Notre Dame secondary, but like from a USC health point of view, how are they heading into this weekend? I think there's two guys to watch: uh, receiver Mario Williams. Uh, like Lincoln Riley hasn't been like forthcoming with injury stuff at all <laughs> this year, um, but like he tweaked something uh, before the Arizona game, and he missed like three games in a row, and he played a little bit against UCLA last week. It was his first game back. Uh, he didn't, like, I don't know if he was on a pitch count or anything, but he just didn't play, like, the normal amount he usually plays. Um, and he's been, like, their number two receiver 
all seasons, I wonder, with another week if those snaps will increase. And Eric Gentry injured his ankle against uh, Utah. And early in the season, he was like their their biggest impact guy. Oh, one of their biggest impact guys on defense just because I've, I've never seen like another linebacker built like him. He's like 6'6", six, six, like 205. So he looks like a receiver. And uh, But he's totally disruptive in the passing lanes. It's like quarterbacks just like kind of like malfunction when they see him and they're like, do I th- how do I throw it over this guy? And so like he gets his hands on balls and he just like breaks stuff up or like... I just want to stop um, you there. Like, Drew Pine has like three batted passes every week. Um, cause he's five ten, So I, th- this, he may throw it into like his chest protector. Um, this is, this you is a bit like of a matchup problem for Notre Dame, frankly. I, I won't lie. You, you, you looked like you were looking at your phone when you said, I'm going to stop you right there. And you said, Drew Pine, I thought you were going to say, stop the show. Drew Pine just got hurt or transferring no. or something. It was going to happen. No, I just like this. I've sort of have a running Twitter joke of tip pass of the week, but I put a little trademark on the, uh, the tweet because like, He's good for two, usually two every week. Um, and when you have a shorter quarterback who can't see over the line, and you're talking about a six-five linebacker coming in, that that is a that's a that could be a a matchup problem for Notre Dame. But like outside beyond that, like the other the other injury guys. I mean, you said those were the two big guys. Other than that, are they yeah. they're fairly healthy? Uh, gen- yeah, they're fairly healthy. I think Gentry will still be like. He came back against UCLA, but only played like one series and it looked like his ankle was still bothering him. So I think that's going to be like the biggest one to watch to see if he can play or if he can play more um, this week. But everyone else health-wise is pretty good for USC at this point. At least I think it's generally about as good as you can ask for, for from a health standpoint for them at this point. Very, very important question. I can't believe it took us 38 minutes to get into this. How is USC's punt protection team? Because Notre Dame has been <laughs> phenomenal at blocking punts this year. Oh, where's John They've Baxter? Bring like, back. Do, they punt, do they punt at USC? I guess this yeah. should be the first question. But They didn't punt until like two minutes left in the game on <laughs> Saturday. And like that like was very close to being blocked. And like, I, like I haven't like I've seen I paid attention to the game but like I haven't watched like every game and like I but I've know like the pump blocks have been like a thing and so <laughs> USC don't have a special teams coordinator and like they don't, they don't have like a, a dedicated special teams coach they have an analyst who helps I think a lot of the assistants uh, just pitch in and stuff <laughs> like the special teams will do some like mind numbing stuff sometimes what and, was like, that like squib kick back, on like, saturday night i was just baffled by that <laughs> made no sense exactly exactly they did it twice on saturday and uh, the first time they did it US, ucla scored like six plays immediately after and then they did it in the fourth quarter and like they didn't the kicker didn't kick it as far as he's supposed to so ucla started like their 45 yard line and they scored like one play like immediately after so like all the fans are were pissed and then uh, the kicker missed two field goals. Um, the kickoff return unit hasn't been great uh, this season. Um, the punter was like brought in from Australia like in August. Um, so like it's it's been like uh, not the best year for USC special teams. They've they've actually had some moments where they've been good, but for the most part, I think they've been kind of underwhelming. Uh, so that's definitely like an aspect I'm I'm going to be watching on Saturday. I was gonna say oh, I, God, they they, yeah. they have not had one blocked yet, so maybe there's a first time for uh, <laughs> first time for everything. But like the the fact that their punter's last name is Sleep, um, I don't know. Maybe they'll, they'll sleepy. 
there's a there's a lot of puns <laughs> to be had there if uh, Notre Dame gets them. And like, yeah, I feel like perhaps there will be some Broyles Award snub motivation here since Brian Mason was uh, on the list, Notre Dame special teams coordinator, but uh, did not make the semifinalist. But I believe <laughs> USC's defensive line coach did, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, yeah so, did. yeah, I think that that it does feel like a like I don't feel like it's a game where Notre Dame has to score a non-offensive touchdown to win, but it does seem like one where they're going to have to make an explosive play outside of the norm. Um, and I guess like if, so what's, you know, in, in terms of USC's defense, like we talked about some of their personnel issues a little bit or their development issues, just like schematically, like where do teams get them? Um, is it, is it, you know, inside zone runs? Is it uh play action passes? Like it more is like deep shot, 50, 50 balls. Like where, where do you get them? If you're an opposing offense. I think it's more attacking like the edges with the run game. Okay. UCLA, I don't think they did they did it enough. Um, you like they tried to attack USC like in the interior. Um, and Zach Charbonnet was tackled for loss like surprisingly like a three or like three times in the second half. But whenever they had runs to the edge or DTR was like lead blocking, those plays always went for 10, 20 yards. And um I, I think that's where you can attack USC. Um, they've been worse in, with the pass, just like in the seams over the middle of the field. I think I think their fan, I think USC's fans have been like panicking about Michael Mayer since like the Utah game because Delta, uh, Delta Kincaid had like 16 catches for like 234 yards against USC. And uh, they've been like panicking about Michael Mayer. Like this one's been like circled like for a long, long time. Like no tight end is really like, well, UCLA actually their tight end scored three times, but it wasn't like those were all like red zone play action plays. Um, but they've been worried about like this matchup and with Michael Mayer for almost a month and a half now. Oh, well, I thought you were exaggerating, but you really did have six Dalton Kincaid really did have 16 <laughs> catches for 234 <laughs> yeah. yards. Well, I, I don't think that to your point, I, I don't see Notre Dame getting into or winning a shootout, but yeah, I, I, someone told me a stat today and I, I wasn't sure if it was true or not. And sure enough, it's on page one of the game notes, but their name's on a five-game streak of 35 or more points. Anyone want to guess the last time they did that? Uh, 1940s? 1943. Uh, they've never done it in six straight games, and I think they might have to do it um, in this one. Um, I am curious. You know, you mentioned Mayer. Uh, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, at how well USC was able to run without Travis Dye last week. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that's sustainable? I mean, U- UCLA and Notre Dame run defense is pretty comparable. Statistics-wise, I think Notre Dame's a little bit more physical, but but what do you expect from them without Ty this week? Yeah, they, they didn't really miss a beat um, without him, and I thought that was surprising because he was so big for what they did short yardage-wise and everything like that. But Austin Jones was good. Uh, earlier in the season, he just lost a lot of reps throughout the course of this season because his pass protection wasn't as good as Travis Dye's. Travis Dye really gained that role because he was – a great pass blocker for Caleb Williams, and he bailed him. He bailed him out on a ton of throws throughout the season. Um, so I, I didn't expect much change in the run game. I expected a lot of. I expected that to impact the pass game more, but it, but it really didn't. And I think Austin Jones brings more as a receiver out of the backfield than I did. Um, but it, it didn't like his pass protection and his issues there didn't hurt them. Um, against UCLA, which was kind of surprising because UCLA can get after the quarterback a little bit. 
Um, this is kind of my last question, but I, I was interested in like the atmosphere on Saturday because like it's been hostile to the home team in this series. I think the last few times mm-hmm. I've been out there for like kind of yeah. obvious reasons, um, or it's been apathetic. And but I do remember I've been doing this long enough that I remember covering the 2002 game out there and the 2006 game out there when USC was good and Notre <clears throat> Dame was good, and it being really hostile and not sort of like this getaway weekend for Notre Dame fans who live in California. Like it was not a place where you just like, if you were a fan wearing Notre Dame gear, like head on a swivel. Um, Like what, what's the atmosphere been like so far this season in the Coliseum? It's been renovated. Like it's kind of, I would assume a different vibe there. And like, so what's kind of your expectation for that atmosphere on Saturday? I'm really curious to see what it's going to be like. It, it's been energetic at the Coliseum this season. But they've been like 63, 65,000 people. It's like a 77,000 seat stadium now mm-hmm. after the, the renovation. Um, it's been energetic and obviously, but they haven't had like a marquee like home opponent. They had like Washington State who was like, okay, they're like four and one at the time, but they weren't like a top 25 team. Uh, they had Fresno State when Jake Kaner was still healthy early in the season, but that's, you know, Fresno State. Um, so they haven't had like a, like like another you know powerhouse come in there yet and i i, I want to see what it's like this weekend because like the rose bowl you know i had the tarps on but there's still 77 or seventy thousand people like that was filled and i think lincoln riley took notice of that and he he mentioned after the game like west coast football is like alive and well and he basically alluded to like you know i, I want to see more of this like on the west coast where you know the environment's like it was in the rose bowl on Saturday night. And yeah, it's interesting. It was I was like, just, yeah, I was just like looking at the 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 ticketing for this. Like, it's not sold out, but it's going to be. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. the the seating map makes it look like there's about seventy five tickets available for this game. Um, so I mean yeah. that that will be a sellout for. It seems like it has a chance to be a great atmosphere. Yeah, it was like I think him saying that was kind of like a call to action to like the USC fans. Like, hey, we have this team. Like, support us. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm curious to see what that atmosphere is going to be like on Saturday because you know, I've been covering this team since 2018. And, you know, this should be the best atmosphere I think they've had in the Coliseum you know, since then. I'll let you out of here. If you want to make a prediction, go for it. If you don't, we could save it for your print product on Friday. But USC will lose this game if... If they get manhandled on the line of scrimmage on on defense. Um, I, I think that will because they've been able to stop teams enough. They stopped Oregon state enough. They stopped, uh, UCLA enough to force those quarterbacks to pass. And those quarterbacks are able to make mistakes. They stopped Utah enough, but cam rising was good enough to make them pay in the passing game. Uh, I, I think if they can't stop the run, I think it's going to be major trouble. Um, I think USC will win, but I, but I still think it'll be a close, competitive game. Yeah, it's, I'm fascinated to sort of see if Notre Dame can kind of control the pace a little bit. Like, I could definitely see, like, if the game's in the 20s, I think Notre Dame will win. I could see Notre Dame maybe winning if it's in the 30s. If it's in the 40s, I that's sort of when the, the train has left the station a little bit for Notre Dame offensively, unless we're talking about punt blocks and stuff. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it should be... Should be a very fun atmosphere. I'm looking forward to getting out there uh, for reasons other than the snow outside of my office. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and Matt will be out there joining me. So Antonio, we will see you uh, Saturday night at the Coliseum and the press box. Thanks for uh, making some time for us on the shamrock to go pretty deep on the Trojans. And if any of our listeners want to read more on USC, you can check out, check out Antonio's stuff on the athletic. Um, I really liked his piece earlier in the year on sort of USC be kind of coming a little bit of a villain again in college football. Um, and you, we talked about that at the top of the show with sort of, uh, you know, the transfer portal and NIL and coaching changes and all that. So plenty of uh, good USC material on the athletic too for you to check out. So Antonio, thanks again. We'll see you on Saturday night. He's Matt. I'm Pete. Thanks for being with us on the latest episode of the Shamrock.